This is a Historic England podcast, sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. Welcome to Irreplaceable, a history of England in 100 places. I'm your new host, Dr. Susanna Lipscomb, a historian based at the University of Roehampton, and I'm here to steer you through the next 50 of Historic England's 100 most important locations in England, as nominated by you and selected by 10 expert category judges. Previously, Emma Barnett and our expert judges have revealed the music and literature, travel and tourism, homes and gardens, sport and leisure, and science and discovery locations that have shaped us as a nation. They discussed how sites of great achievement in the worlds of science, music and literature have affected us. Now we're going to look at how places which have suffered destruction and loss have also left their mark. Today, I'm beginning season two with our loss and destruction category, In these episodes, we explore the 10 most striking examples of places that have been lost or destroyed, or those that have been witness to loss and destruction. Often they're places where the structures that remain are ruins, or may no longer exist physically, but their loss is etched in memory, where the legacy and resonance of loss is palpable. Some of these places have witnessed terrible losses of life and remain emotive for many but they are among the battle scars that make England the country it is today. And in the words of our judge for this category, Professor Mary Beard, it is important for us as humans to remember and memorialize tragedy. To take a journey through these locations, I'm joined by historian Dan Cruikshank and Historic England's Emily G. Welcome to the studio. How has it been, Dan, looking through these sort of thinking about loss and destruction? Um, I, I've been battling, I suppose, to save buildings for 40 years. So I often see the world of architecture through what is not there. And also I'm aware that often those things which are not there now can be there again. You know, we have a great record, actually, in, in Europe, certainly, of recreating things which um, the loss of which was appalling, intolerable. Emily, this must speak to the heart of what Historic England's about, this theme. That's right. It's, it's obviously made me think a lot about the work that we do every day, um, thinking about what's significant, what are the most important things we need to look after and, and how, we, how we sort of continue to live with them. OK, so let's move on to our first location to be selected by our judge for this category, Mary Beard, and that's the Bronze Age settlement in Peterborough, known as Must Farm. Professor Beard said this is one of the greatest recent testimonies to the ability of archaeology to recover the lost past and a past that we learned suffered its own catastrophes. 3,000 years ago, a settlement of timber roundhouses raised on stilts above the marshy ground of the Fens was destroyed in a fire. The remains of the roundhouses, with all the contents still inside, fell into the waterlogged ground and were preserved. In 1999, a local archaeologist was walking along the edge of the former Fenland River at the town of Whittlesea and noticed a series of sticks poking through the edge of the working quarry here. On closer inspection and after a little digging, eight Bronze Age logboats were discovered, followed by the roundhouses themselves. Having been excavated, they offer us an incredible insight into everyday life in the Bronze Age 3,000 years ago. Emily, tell me about this settlement and what happened to it. Well, what's so remarkable about Must Farm is that we have um, the level of preservation just tells us so much detail about 
Bronze Age life that was happening at this site. And it seems that the settlement itself was built on a platform on stilts over the river channel. And around that was a, a sort of palisade or a wooden platform. Um, and it seems that the buildings were round timber structures um, on, on stilts and with a sort of springy wattle floor panelling and roofs made from a mix of thatch and clay and turf. It seems that the, the platform caught fire and that meant that the whole thing collapsed into the water. And we think that some of the buildings when they when they collapsed were, were, were really very new. Um, and that the entire place really clapped. It's sort of something of Pompeii about it because it seems like from the evidence that archaeologists have found um, sort of bowls, spoons and bowls just there as people were fleeing in, in terror from this extraordinary event that was taking place. And it, it captures so much about the detail of Bronze Age life. That's a really, really remarkable discovery. Well, that's why it's intriguing, isn't it? Because it's, it's um, not just the ancientness, but the, uh, the, the, the drama of the destruction. And, the, and it's incredibly humble. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it is this lost world, isn't it, of, of ordinariness and not a monument, not a tomb, not a grave, not a, not a, not a stone circle, but ordinary homes for ordinary people. Mm. And the, and the detail of stuff there that's emerged is, is sensational, isn't it? Yes. What sort of objects were found? Um, well, huge numbers of things. Ceramics. We have well-preserved pots um, from large vessels just down to tiny little cups that were sort of stacked inside themselves. Um, there are beads here, which um, hint at sophisticated trading routes with the continent. Um, we also have some of the best examples of Bronze Age textiles surviving on the site. And we know, amazingly, what people were eating. There was a rubbish pile that shows the diet... Um, here it was wild boar, red deer, and pike, and there are charred remains of cereal grains found still within the bowl with a spoon that someone must have been eating. Interesting, the trading routes. I mean, how much information does one have? Can one extract from the beads? I wonder where. I mean, these are the ancient tracks through Britain, not like going to the continent, things being brought across. That's mm. right, and it hints mm. at that sort of world of trade and rich fabrics, and, and it is that moment of, of a fire, but a fire, buildings going into a waterlogged fen so mm. that they survive. I mean, it's an amazing combination. Yes. I mean, it gives us an incredible insight into how people lived and the detail of what they were eating. That's a, really, <laughs> what, what you know, the sort of rich diet they had yeah. um, gives us such insight. Well, we know that the site was excavated in a pretty laborious process, and actually is still going on. There are thousands of pieces of wood that have been recovered and are awaiting analysis. So who knows what we've got yet to discover about our Bronze Age ancestors. But there is, I mean, there is nothing else like this. It's, I mean, they did, that's the point in terms of its, in the amount of stuff, the quality of stuff and, and the sort of the social level it relates to. I mean, it's just important. I mean, obviously in European terms, world terms, isn't mm. it? Yeah, extraordinary treasure trove. And as you say, telling us something about the lives of ordinary people. Mm. Well, let's move to our second location. That's Whitby Abbey, um, a place dear to my heart. It's not far from that picturesque seaside town, and you have to imagine uh, a windswept, dramatic headland overlooking the, the sea, all stormy skies and atmosphere. And at the heart of the scene are these beautiful, haunting ruins. And Whitby Abbey has an extraordinary history. It was almost lost twice, once at the dissolution of the monasteries and again under fire in World War I. And this is quite a striking example of a monastic ruin. Monastic ruins ruins form the fabric of our daily life form. It's only something like London. We're walking always through the ghosts and the remains of the monasteries that once surrounded London. And their pattern of their spaces still dictate our street forms a large degree, but you can unpick and get tremendous thrills from um, listening to little 
highway port in the past. Whitby's a great example. Um, Whitby is because it has such an amazing history. I mean, I remember from um, doing Anglo-Saxon history at university, be reading and bead about the double monastery that was founded there by mm. Hild and monks and nuns. But it's had other significance along the way, of course, as well. Um, I mean, it was that's just the sort of start of its importance. There are connections all along the way um, to important historical events. That's right. And the, the, the ruined monastery that we see today, it was built the 13th to the 15th century, a really sort of 200-year-long programme of kind of re-landscaping the site. Um, but it has, as you say, a much longer history. We think there was a Bronze Age settlement here. A roundhouse has been far found not far from the ruins. Um, and it had a really important period, as you say, in the, in the Anglo-Saxon period, um, when Rome essentially had collapsed in Britain and this clifftop ruin became part of Northumbria, a powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdom. The other thing, of course, uh, monastic ruins are terrific, but, but equally terrific the experience of being in, in Britain. Other towns like Whitby, which adjoins, I mean, we have we are so rich in sensational and once sophisticated, maybe also sophisticated, uh, small, small towns like Whitby, beautiful architecture, beautiful place. And of course, in a sense, the, 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 the ruins are so wonderful because you see them in the context, I say, of landscape and nature, but also exquisite 18th, largely 18th century town. Whitby is wonderful, isn't it? It is a beautiful town. And actually, I don't know if you've ever been, they now have, well, um, they now have amazing weekends twice a year, oh, one goth festival, <laughs> <laughs> steampunk festival. They build on Bram Stoker like there's no tomorrow. I, I, all, all good luck to them. It doesn't get much for mention, does it, in Dracula? He arrives. Did, That's all. Bram Stoker, wasn't he looking over at Whitby Abbey when he got the inspiration for how to write Dracula? Oh, was he? I know Dracula arrives on, a, on this ghost craft, doesn't it, that whisks into Whitby and then the great... Hound leaps off, which is him. But then, then I think Whitby's quite quickly left behind, I think, in the book. But nevertheless, obviously, the kind of the, 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 the gothic feel of the landscape and the ruins it was the inspiration, wasn't mm. it? And, and earlier than that, too, we, we, we know that during Abbas Hill's time, the first English poet, Cademan, had spent much time here. Um, and there's been something of a kind of imaginative, special and sort of soulful feel about this clifftop, really, for, for centuries, just as you described. Cademan's the earliest recorded poet in English history. It's amazing, isn't it? And he's mentioned by Bede. And we know from Bede also about the Synod of Whitby, don't we? Emily, what's, tell me about that. That's right. Well, this was um, a really important moment in, in Christian history here. It took place in 664. Um, and it seems a decision was taken by King Oswiu on behalf of the very large kingdom of Northumberland here at Whitby. Um, and it decided on the differing traditions and customs between the Celtic and the Roman churches, which were both practicing in the area. Um, and it's largely around how the Easter calendar is calculated each year. Um, and it was Rome, Rome that won out. Um, and as, as you said, the, the Synod of Whitby was documented by the Monk Bede, which is why we know so much about this really important kind of moment in Christian history. There are two things I remember about this. One, it's to, also to do with how you cut a monk's tonsil, which apparently is a very important issue at the time, and that King Oswiu was a follower of the Celtic tradition of Christianity, but his wife was a follower of the Roman tradition, and clearly she held the day in this. So... Uh, well, this is a really good question, and if you know the answer to this, and, and if we're talking rubbish, please write in on Twitter, hashtag 100 places. But as I understand it, if you've got a, a tonsured yeah. head, then there's a sort of direct correlation with the divine, if you think of it in very physical terms. That's why I believe it's the case, too. It's, it's comparable, isn't it? It's a belief that top of the skull, it's like the third eye and all that. It, 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 many traditions of religion have the same idea. 
that you have this array of energy that goes into your body through the top of your head or out, I believe, I think. Well, and of course, <laughs> and, and as someone who works on Henry VIII, I have to talk about the fact that this is also one of the largest abbeys, uh, one of the last largest abbeys to be dissolved by Henry. Of course, we know um, that 800 religious houses were dissolved um, in four short years. It's extraordinary when you think about it. But um, Whitby Abbey, we, we can tell from um, the Valor Ecclesiasticus, which was from 1535, Cromwell did a survey of the, the monasteries, that it was worth 437 pounds two shillings and nine pence so it was very wealthy and then it was stripped of all its valuables and abandoned so so what we've got that we've got the dissolution and then we've got the the you know the german um attack it, you know it's amazing that it survives at all was there a, was there a prize what, what happened did, did they take their their king shilling and run i mean obviously a lot of the guys that took the pension went that's right just three out of all of the 800 abbeys three abbots stood up against yeah, it um, yeah. um and um people and they were executed most people, yes, as you say, took the took money. The pension went. Uh, which was a good pension and got on with it. So, and then, of course, places like Whitby, I mean, just down the road, um, Fountains Abbey was yes. was uh, pulled apart and made into another hall. But Whitby Abbey, amazingly, the ruins are still there and beautiful. So you can still visit them today and, and be struck, as Stoker was, by that dramatic image of the ruins against the skyline. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the, you know, the, 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 the monuments to barbarity of the past become now, of course, emblems of romantic beauty mm. and I love the idea that in the 19th century when it was really flourishing as a seaside town that they became a bit of a tourist attraction at that stage and the idea that people were coming for their sort of fish and chips holiday and then the sort of ruined abbey up there is a kind of wonderful sort of dramatic backdrop to the, the joy and frivolity down on the seaside below so here the gradual loss of a building has become something of an inspiring icon location number three is a very interesting little village and specifically a monastery within it the ruins of Greyfriars Monastery in Dunwich on the Suffolk coast make a peaceful, beautiful site to visit today. But the village's continuous battle with the elements means that it has been dubbed Britain's Atlantis. At its height, 800 years ago, Dunwich was the 10th largest town in England, an important international port and a seat of power for the Anglo-Saxon bishops. But it was hit by a series of devastating storms in the late 13th century and has been battered by the North Sea ever since. Much of the village has since crumbled into the sea and coastal erosion continues to change the landscape here. Greyfriars Monastery was founded sometime around 1277 and it's always had this close and intense relationship with the landscape and the sea, hasn't it? Right, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do we know about this, the friary, the original monastery here? Well, not long after its founding, on, on New Year's Eve in 1286, a, a particularly great storm came and destroyed the original friary. And so they rebuilt it further inland. Um, and by 1289, the whole monastery was there and it was largely escaping the, the advancing sea. So they decided to build it, build it inland. And that's where the ruins stand today. And it's, of course, hugely emblematic of the, the power that man and nature have over buildings and places and how that's sort of manifest in our landscape for, for centuries. And it's here to the east now just a strip of land between the sea and the ruin that the medieval Dunwich and before that a Roman settlement existed once upon a time. Am I right in thinking that the, the, the erosion by the North Sea is such that they've lost 700 metres over seven, 700 years? I mean, that seems an extraordinary yeah. amount. It's strange, isn't it? It haunts the imagination, Dunwich. I mean, it, 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 people go there to, to, to reflect and to ponder. Yes, the wonder and power of nature, the loss of communities. You, you imagine, the, you know, the... the, the, the 
had to look at the sea, the peoples who, who lived and their, their lives. It's very interesting, actually, isn't it? A very powerful emblem of loss, actually, when one goes there. I mean, people flock, don't they, to Dunwich? Mm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange... Um, you flock to do a pilgrimage to essentially nothing that's visible, nothing of this world, but something of the other world. Yes, a place that has sort of moved over already, and you're yeah. going Material, to witness that. fascinating, mm. actually. Yes. There's, a, there's a rather lovely thing, actually, a very evocative way of, of sort of paying homage to the place. So the, the all-night cycle ride has been running for about 20 years, going from East London out to Dunwich, sort of cycle through the night, and they're kind of candlelit junctions to guide you on your way, and then you wa- arrive in the morning and have a, a dip in the sea to kind of restore yourself from the journey. But it's a wonderfully kind of evocative route out to this sort of semi-lost listen, place. You listen hard and you hear the church bells, can't you? Somewhere out in the sea. Our judge for this category, Mary Beard, noticed that the timely reminder of how gradual change can be as destructive as an instantaneous tragedy in the loss of this once major settlement. And this gives us this sense that actually for today, gradual change in the face of nature is very pertinent, isn't it? I mean, it's something, the challenges we're facing with climate change, we're thinking about how to continue to sustain places in the in the, the wake of circumstances like this. It seems very topical as well. Absolutely. And it's, it's an interesting way about how we use the protection systems. Obviously, we can't protect ourselves necessarily, we can build defences, but the idea of listing as a way of indicating the most precious and significant things that should be focused on or saved if there is coastal erosion, what needs to be moved or what needs to be protected the very most as, as nature comes in on us. Okay, on that note, I think we'll end this episode here. So thank you, Dan Cruikshank, Emily G for joining me. We've got more locations to reveal next time, so don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player, then you won't miss it. And if you have time to leave a review, I'd really appreciate that too. I'm Susanna Lipscomb. See you next time on Irreplaceable, the history of England in 100 places. This is a Historic England podcast, sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. When it feels irreplaceable, Trust Ecclesiastical.